Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Here we are in the year 2021, 101 years after women, with the passing of the 19th Amendment in 1920, got the right to vote. It only took some 70-odd years after a woman's suffrage movement started in upstate New York. Women's suffrage took a back seat after the Civil War to getting black people the right to vote. The abolition movement started before the Civil War, and at some point it was thought that the two movements had similar aims and should work together. That didn't happen. What did happen was the abolition movement brought together three very strong women in a lifelong friendship. What happened to those women for most of the 19th century is not for me to tell you. That could be done in a much better way by someone who did the research and wrote the book, who just happens to be here today. The book is The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. The author is Dorothy Wickenden, who, among other things, has been the executive editor of The New Yorker magazine since 1996. Hello, Dorothy. Welcome to Politics, A Love Story. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Allow me to set the stage for you. Harriet yes, Tubman, please. Martha Coffin Wright, and Frances A. Seward became friends around 1850. In the decades following, the women, with no evident power to change anything, became co-conspirators and intimate friends, protagonists in an inside-out story about the Second American Revolution. Take it from there, please. Yes. So I felt the, just an irresistible urge to write this book. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just set the stage of that for, for a moment because it usually interests people. I was actually in Auburn working on my previous book about my grandmother who grew up in the 1880s in Auburn. So she came along a little bit later than these three women. And Auburn is the, the town where these, the three women of this book can't come together. So I was in Auburn for the first time in my life uh, researching uh, a, a point that my grandmother had made in her oral history about how her grandparents lived next door to the great 19th century statesman William H. Seward and his wife, Frances Seward. So I visited the, the Seward House Museum, and the director told me that that story was correct. And then the young education director, a woman named Jennifer Haynes, took me under her wing and insisted on giving me a private tour. And she did not want to talk about William Seward. She wanted to talk about Francis Seward. And she began by taking me down a narrow, steep set of stairs that went down into the basement, original basement kitchen of the house. And that, she told me, was where Francis Seward hid fugitive slaves for a decade in the uh, years leading up to the Civil War. And she was quite uh, aggravated by the, the mostly male biographers of Seward for neglecting to tell the, the, the full story of this woman, who was dismissed, as Seward's first biographer put it, as a neurotic invalid. She did have Ill periods of ill health. There's no question about it. She had her neuroses, as we all do. But she was more politically more radical than her husband, and she went. She she did something about it. So I thought that alone was a great untold story, and 
Then Jennifer told me about her good friend, Martha Coffin Wright, my second protagonist, who lived around the corner. And she was, she was Frances's age. They were both young mothers in the 1840s uh, when, when Martha moved to town. Large families, you know, basically staying at home as women were expected to do with their children, taking, taking care of their children, and in Martha's case, taking care of her husband. Frances's husband was away either in Albany or in Washington politicking. So she's, she, Frances spent most of her marriage communicating with her husband by letter. So that was a great asset, those letters. Martha was the younger sister of Lucretia Mott, who was the, one of the century's greatest abolitionists and women's rights crusaders. She was, Lucretia was quite a bit older, and she was a role model for, for Martha and constantly goading her to get out of the house and start doing something about the terrible condition of women and helping the movement to uh, turn, overturn slavery. So there were, there were Francis and Martha, you know, conspiring over tea, you know, sharing, you know, radical pamphlets and so on, and t- talking about their children, but really talking a lot about politics. And then around 1850, they meet Harriet Tubman, who had walked out of slavery on the Eastern Shore all alone, 100 miles uh, to Philadelphia, which is where Lucretia Mott lived. And it had a strong abolitionist community. Harriet Tubman um, made it her mission to get to know just about every abolitionist in town. She became close to Lucretia Mott. And it was Lucretia Mott who introduced Tubman to Martha, her sister Martha, and then Martha who introduced Dubman to Frances Seward because Auburn is in the center of New York State and Tubman, who was beginning to plan her underground railroad excursions, needed, uh, you know, uh, um, she needed contacts in the North and uh, that included across New York State where she could sequester the, her passengers on the underground railroad. So both Martha and Francis were ideally located right in the center of New York State. And usually Tubman took, took her passengers from Maryland all the way into Canada, which, which was a free country. So that when I heard about the connection among these three women and the fact that there they were in Auburn, New York, which most people today, if you're from east, you know, the eastern part of the state, you don't even know about the Finger Lakes District. I just thought that was such an incredible story about people, two, two women who mostly have been overlooked by history and one whom all of us read about in, in, you know, in middle school and learned some, something about her Underground Railroad years, Tubman, but really not very much more than that. And so I thought it was just it, it was the basis of a very different kind of history of antebellum and Civil War America. What's also interesting about Harriet Tubman is that she never learned to read and write. Yes, that's right. And that, um, we all believe, is because as a very young girl, she suffered a serious head injury. She was in a dry goods store picking up some supplies for the the person she was uh, working for, and another overseer had come to, to fetch a uh, an enslaved man and the man was running from him so this the overseer picked up an iron weight on the counter and threw it at this man who was trying to escape and it hit Harriet Tubman in the head instead and it cracked her skull and you know she could have died it was it was a very serious injury and it caused 
um, something called, we believe, uh, temporal lobe epilepsy. And so she had periods throughout her life of blacking out. And she had visions that she thought were uh, uh, could could predict the future, and often they seemed to. It was very uncanny. So she, it seems unlikely that she. It seems likely that that injury made it very difficult. Would have made it very difficult, if not impossible, to to read and write. And uh, she also was just on the move constantly throughout her life until the very end. You know, when she was in her early nineties. Yeah, she uh, she transported dozens of people on the Underground Railroad, and then uh, from Port Royal, she helped to free hundreds of other slaves. It, it, she was just one of those three. She was amazing, as well as the other two, who were well-read women, um, although I don't think they went to college. That wasn't for women in that day. There, yes, there were no colleges for women. Uh, uh, Frances Seward was, was a very wealthy young woman, and her father, who was a county judge, did send her to the, the most um, sort of rigorous finishing school in Troy, New York, and she got a very good education there. So that was the best, you know, that, she, that was available, and she continued to read throughout her life very, very serious um, literature and political philosophy and history and Martha Coffin Wright stopped her schooling at the age of 15, as most girls did, and then most of them soon got married. But she remained just a voracious reader. And she often, one of the, one of the bonds between her and Frances was their love of reading. And Frances had a magnificent library. And so sometimes Martha would stop by, pick up four or five books, go home, read them, bring them back, and then the two women would discuss them. But one of the great things about this story, I think, is they, they, these are three women of different classes and races. Martha was a middle-class mother of six, had, had no help in the house. Frances had a house full of servants. And Harriet Tubman was a, a, you know, a recently enslaved young woman, young, about 15 years younger than the other two. And yet they had so much in common. They, com- they were all deeply religious. They believed that slavery was a sin, and they believed that if if that was your conviction, you it was incumbent upon you to do something about it. So they went about it in different ways, but they were they worked completely in tandem, and they trusted each other. And of course, both Martha and Frances saw Harriet Tubman as the embodiment of everything they believed in. This woman who had left her husband and her, the rest of her family, and uh, uh, you know, went back, as you say, more than a dozen times to rescue as many enslaved people as she could. I mean, if, if there was anything that defied the stereotype about black women, it was Harriet Tubman. And what's also interesting is that in the 1830s, convention barred women from attending meetings with men, from eating alone in restaurants, and from driving their own carriages. Women had no legal recourse even when their husbands threatened their lives. They had no access to their inheritances. They could not sit on juries or on their church vestries. They could not make a will, sign a contract, or file a lawsuit. They could not vote. If a woman pursued a divorce, she became a social pariah and lost everything. Her children, any financial support, and her reputation. So, in a sense, although Harriet wasn't in the same 
financial class, uh, she was subject to all these things and more because she was black. Yes, absolutely. And it's really interesting going all the way back to Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a great hero to these, to these, certainly to Martha and Francis. Um, women, uh, educated women saw women, at, they just described them as chattel because they were their husband's property and they did have absolutely no rights. Uh, and once you were married, you know, you had to get, you were forced to give whatever inheritance you had, if you had one over to your husband and he, he could do whatever, as you just read from that passage, he could do whatever he liked with you. And Francis's epiphany about women's rights, she always had, had believed it in theory, but her epiphany came when she w- realized that her dear sister who lived around the corner with her husband was being beaten, routinely beaten by this man. And Frances wrote to her husband, how, how is this possible in a, in a democracy? Um, And how, why, why can the women not have the right to divorce and, and take their children, which is exactly what her sister would have done if, if it hadn't, if it had been remotely possible. And she said, you know, the laws in this country have been written to completely disenfranchise women, and this is wrong. So that was very early. This is, that was in the early 1930s. Uh, so these women were in so many ways, you know, ahead of their time, articulating ideas that were, were, were somewhat in the air, but certainly were not discussed in public. And as you say, the idea of women of women in speaking in public, except at Quaker meetings, was was considered laughable. Well, that's an interesting. And and, and with, you know, if there happened to be a meeting that consisted of men and women, it was called a promiscuous gathering, and it was really frowned upon. You just mentioned the Quakers, and that brings up an interesting point. They seem to be the most involved religious group that took part in the Underground Railroad. Uh, am I correct in that? Well, they certainly were among the most active, and this this was one of the reasons that Martha was felt so strongly about slavery. Her, her family uh, dated back to the earliest found white founders of Nantucket, and those they were her one of her early ancestors was a woman who was a minister, and they all were very very strongly opposed to slavery, as were the uh, Quakers. In Philadelphia, where Francis, where uh, Qua- uh, Martha had grown up, so the Quakers, yes, were incredibly active, and they played a big role in abolishing slavery in New York. But there were also other uh, breakaway groups. There were a number of Methodists, the the Wesleyans formed at that time, and they they left their their main church because they thought it was too hierarchical and too conservative. And so this was part of a movement that was particularly active across New York State and part of the Second Great Awakening and this sort of religious revival. So these, all of these evangelical groups preached the equality between men and women and the fact that men and women had the, um, a free will, which, which traditional Calvinist theory did not, did not believe. And that if, if that they it was that they must in, oppose slavery because it was a sin. Uh, what about the Unitarians? Were they much involved? Yes, the Unitarians 
uh, were very much involved, and there are several characters in the book who, who were very activist Unitarians, and some of them were some of the, them were so, so the, the Unitarians, yes, believed some of these values, but they were a little bit hesitant about going as far as some of the abolitionists did. So some Unitarian, one, one Unitarian in particular, broke away from his church and established what he called a free church, which included free blacks and, and whites. And they, in these churches, they preached basically revolution. I mean, this was really, they were really considered dangerous radicals by most Americans. And this all started uh, the friendship and many of these more activist uh, aspects of their lives in 1850, which was the first National Women's Rights Convention in Worcester, Massachusetts. The seething yes, Center. So, so the Seneca Falls Convention had occurred in 1848, two years earlier, uh, which was the the first the first time women had get, gotten together and held their own convention, a convention devoted to women's rights. And the, the organizers of that convention in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, were Martha, among them were Martha and uh, Lucretia Mott, her sister, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And it was at, just for the purposes of my book, it was at, I realized as I was doing the research, that it was at Seneca Falls that Martha ma- made two friendships that became lifelong and changed her life forever. And they were with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass, who had just started his abolitionist newspaper in Rochester. And she, before that, she had been, she, she was, she had six children. She was 41. She was pregnant with her seventh child. She just saw no hope for her future. She thought it, it was, she would ever forever be a mother and grandmother. And that would be that these two people, Douglas and Stanton changed that. They, they each insisted. So Douglas insisted that, that she become, she join actively join the abolitionist movement and Stanton insists that she help her found the women's rights movement. And at that uh, convention in Seneca Falls in 1848, 68 women and 32 men signed the Declaration of Sentiments that, among other things, stated that women should be able to exercise the elective franchise, in other words, be allowed to vote. Yes, and again, that was such a controversial idea that even Lucretia Mott did not agree that that should be one of the planks. And so she argued with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, Lucretia was quite a bit older, and she knew that there was no way that in the coming years they could achieve, the women could achieve the, the right to vote. And Lucretia was much more sort of for human rights broadly conceived, and she thought that abolition needed to be the first item on the agenda. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who also was the daughter of a judge, felt really strongly that women had to have the same legal rights that legal rights that men had. So that was a major focus of what became, she thought, her movement. Uh, and she certainly was with, with, uh, with Susan B. Anthony and with Martha's considerable help. Um, she really did lead the crusade. And, they, and so um, suffrage was very much one of their ideas. And they uh, they they pushed relentlessly for changing the divorce laws. So and the, the you know their progress was was mixed and it took years and years and it took a long time even to convince women to go to one of their meetings because it was such a um, considered such a 
such an outre thing to do. Except that in that first convention, uh, or the National Women's Right Convention in Worcester in 1850, which was considered the seething center of all reforms, it attracted more than a thousand women and men from 11 states as far away as Iowa and California to discuss the goals expressed at Seneca Falls. Women's rights to own property, to be granted equal education and access to every profession and to vote. Yes, and that is a tribute to, to the, the progress that these women had made in just a couple of years. And they were helped enormously by their, their abolitionist friends. So women had been working with male abolitionists since the early 1830s. So when William Lloyd Garrison started the American Abolition Society, American Anti-Slavery Society in 1833, women were barred from becoming members. So women started their own female anti-slavery societies, many of which were integrated racially, but they modeled themselves on the, the men they had been working with because they, they, they learned all of the lessons that these men had been, you know, learning for years. And remember, since women had no rights, they didn't know how to write a petition or send it to Congress. I mean, Lucretia Mott was the first to admit they didn't know what they were doing. But, they, you know, they just worked at it and worked at it. And, you know, but, so they had been holding small meetings for, for a great number of years, and they'd been expanding their contacts and so by 18, and of course, Seneca Falls got cover, you know, got newspaper coverage, much of it extremely unflattering, uh, but it got people curious. And so people did, women did come from, and men too, came from far and wide to see what this was all about. And boy, these women were, were pretty, pretty radical in some of their demands. You know, Lucy Stone was one of the first college graduates in, in the United States. She'd gone to Oberlin, was just a, uh, you know, uh, she was 30 years old. She was a complete firebrand. Well, you wrote some interesting things, whether you got them from the letters or whatever, but I'd like to quote one, one part of your book. It was said about abolitionists, are we enough to make a revolution? No, sir. But are we enough to begin one? And once begun, it can't be turned back. Although the women's rights cohort was small and reviled, it was seen as an explosive force capable of blasting open narrow hearts and minds and laws. I thought that was a great uh, point that you put in your book. Thanks. Yes, and that was the, the sort of Martha, uh, I was sort of seeing this through Martha, who had gotten, the, the quote was from William Lloyd Garrison. Uh, who had said, you know, yeah, we are small, we are small and reviled. And it took so much courage for, for the abolitionists and even more for the women to keep at it because it was, it was dangerous, for one thing, incredibly dangerous. So abolitionist conventions and women's rights conventions invariably were, um, the halls were filled with, with um, young men and boys who were there to make trouble and sometimes they tried to storm the stage and uh, female speakers got Bibles thrown at them because they were seen as, you know, outraging, you know, as, as standing up against what everything the Bible said about women's place in the world. So this was, they were doing something that was so, and, and really was seen as revolutionary. Um, people despised them. And so the, they, the, the women took courage from, from their friends in the abolitionist movement and saw that 
the successes that they had had by just, you know, putting their heads down and continuing to do what they were doing. And the abolitionist movement grew and the women's rights movement in turn began to grow as well. And they began to get some of these laws changed in starting with state legislatures. So they would, the women would have these conventions and at the end of the conventions, the women would go back home to whatever state they were from and then they would start their petition campaigns to, um, for their state legislatures to, um, you know, give women the right to vote in their state or to allow them the right to their property or allow them the right to divorce. So they started at the state level and then they moved to, to Congress. Well, weren't uh, these things happening first in New York State um, because they were based there or uh, am I misreading this? Well, they were they were happening. They were they were happening in different parts, mostly of the the Northeast. It should be said. So, um, William Lloyd Garrison was based in Massachusetts, and there was just about by 1833, there was also a in Salem, a group of black women had started their female anti-slavery society. And uh, in Philadelphia, as I said, uh, Lucretia Mott started the, the Philadelphia Anti-Slavery, the Female Anti-Slavery Society. So they were, they were scattered. New York State just happened to be kind of a hotbed of, of seething radicalism beneath the surface of what seemed to be, you know, very traditional towns uh, where the, the commerce and you know, banking and, you know, in, inventions and, you know, putting the railroads through and so on. This would, this, they seem to be just very, very stable, uh, stable societies looking toward the future, but certainly not to overturn these two, these two, you know, major uh, 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 facets of the, how society was organized. Well, didn't they change some of the laws in, in New York State to advance uh, some of women's rights? Yes, they did. So, um, as I said at the beginning, the women had no rights at all. But in, when Frances was bemoaning the, the terrible fate of her sister, but by 1848, because women had been active behind the scenes, lobbying the legislature, they, they, the state passed the Married Women's Property Act, and it allowed women, lo and behold, to own their own property. Uh, so that was a huge, and that was one of the earliest states to do so. And that turned out to be a huge thing for women, and it was very important, especially to Frances Seward, who had inherited a great deal of money and property, and who, in 1859, sold a house sold a house to Harriet Tubman, who was a fugitive slave, which was just the most staggeringly, you know, unconventional thing she ever could possibly have done. Well, wasn't some of that success due to the fact that uh, Henry Seward had been governor of New York and uh, he might have been able to uh, tell Francis how to go around certain things and lobby certain people? Well, that's interesting. Um, Sort of. And it is true that Seward was one of the best known, he was better known in 1860 when, when Lincoln was elected president, he was better known than Abraham Lincoln. And everyone thought that Seward was going to become president that year. So, and he had been pre- talking very, very openly first in, in, he was the governor of New York and he was a state senator and then he was a U.S. senator. And in all of those years, he had been very frank about his views that 
eventually slavery had to be overturned, that this was not something America could continue perpetually. But he said eventually. He didn't believe, you know, right away. And the abolitionists wanted immediate abolition. So one of the, it's a very complicated marriage. And as over the 1850s, as Francis became more radical politically, William H. Seward became more moderate because he was growing in power in Washington, which was a, a city where slavery was legal and where most of his colleagues were extremely conservative. And he was a great politician. And he knew that in politics, you have to make compromises. So he was always trying to, to get, you know, to, to, to push the right ideals. But he was he was willing to, to pull back when it wasn't when it, he felt the time hadn't come. So Frances, in her letters, kept pushing him, you know, to, to uh, stick to his conscience. He had a very wily uh, political advisor, Thurlow Weed, who was who was always always had the party's you know best interests at heart. And Frances would would argue against Weed and say, "Don't don't listen to that. Don't be pragmatic. You have to follow your conscience, which is what you have always done." And so it becomes a very bitter uh, debate between the two of them when Seward becomes Lincoln's secretary of state and Seward and Lincoln, then the war begins. And they describe the war as a war to save the Union. And to the abolitionists, of course, it was a war to overturn slavery. As, and so eventually that is what, what Lincoln came around to. But um, in those early years, it was it was the, the letters were, were fast and furious between the two stewards, and they were very angry with each other. I want to get back to uh, the, when Lincoln was nominated to be the Republican candidate for president. Uh, so there were mixed feelings in, in the Seward household. Uh, William Henry was very disappointed because he thought that he should have gotten the nomination. As you pointed out, he was much better known than was Lincoln. Uh, Frances, on the other hand, uh, would have liked to have seen her husband advance. But on the other hand, she wanted them all to go back to Auburn and, as a family, stay together. So it was with mixed feelings uh, when he lost the nomination and then bad feelings when he accepted the secretary of state position from Lincoln because that meant he had to stay in Washington. Yes, she knew she, she maintained a fantasy throughout their, their they, they did love each other for all these difficulties. And she kept maintaining this fantasy that someday soon, Henry, as she called him, would retire and they would live the kind of life she'd always dreamed of living quietly together in Auburn with their, with at that point, they're probably their grandchildren. It just was not to be. The man was completely addicted to politics. By the time he, uh, uh, Lincoln asked him to be his secretary of state. He did consult with her before he accepted it, but she knew, she knew at that point that was something that he, that he had to do for the country. And she actually thought he would be very good at that job. He had, he had these diplomatic traits and he was better suited than, than anyone she could imagine to um, helping to guide as she's, as everyone saw it, Lincoln, who was seen as kind of a rube and someone who, you know, wasn't nearly as schooled in the ways of Washington as Seward was. So Frances saw her role as being uh, Seward's conscience. And so she just she just kept that that role up 
you know, through the war, uh, through, through their letters. So she was, she, it was one bitter disappointment for her after another, every time he made an advance in his career. But she, she, by, by the time he became Secretary of State, she basically had reconciled herself that, that this, was, this was inevitable. Let me take a moment to reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, a Love Story. Our guest today is Dorothy Wickenden, who is the executive editor, editor of New Yorker, the New Yorker magazine. And her book is The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. Uh, okay, so uh, yes, uh, Frances was upset that Henry had to stay, and you say that it was really her fantasy. Uh, but the, the country had reached an impasse. Uh, the South must either give up slavery or the North must give up liberty. The two interests are hostile and irreconcilable. Uh, that was a pretty tough statement to make, but I think that was pretty accurate. Yes, and who made that statement? I think that was uh, William Henry Seward, wasn't it? Yes, yes. So he, again, very complicated, fascinating uh, person, and I kept I kept getting derailed because I kept wanting to follow him, you know, him down his path as well as Francis. So I, I had to keep putting her in the foreground. So he he was he was totally committed to this idea that slavery had had to that the South had to let go of slavery, but he also knew that the by the Constitution. It, the, the southern states had the right to so-called own slaves. So one of one of the great dilemmas of the Lincoln administration was how how do you, as president, do you over, overturn slavery constitutionally? And he finally did it at, at, through this military act, which was the Emancipation Proclamation. But the the abolitionists didn't care about the Constitution. You know, Francis would argued in this one incredible letter. To, to Seward, you know, how, how can you allow this to go on when there are 4 million human beings in bondage? How can you say that holding the country together is more important than freeing those people? So, but of course, Lincoln and Seward were politicians and, and they, 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 they knew there were a small number of, of border states, slave states that had not left the Union, and they knew that if they pushed too quickly on this matter, those states, too, would secede, and then the North would lose the war. I think that uh, what is said today it was as true then, that uh, the perfect is often sacrificed, or the good is often sacrificed for the perfect. Uh, you want the best, but that's not necessarily politically feasible, uh, and I think that Seward and yeah. Lincoln saw that. He, they totally did, and Lincoln too. What a genius! What an absolute genius politically, and frankly, he was a much better president, I believe, than than Seward would have been for all of his political gifts. It was just a miracle that that he he ended up being the president during that period. But but both of them would agree, especially Lincoln, who essentially said this after the war, that the. You need you need the, the you needed the abolitionists to prepare the way. They had to the country had to hear from them to understand just how uh, how dire the, the situation was and how evil 
the institution of slavery was. It was very easy, easy for most Northern people just to think that slavery was the South's problem and it had nothing to do with them. And, you know, then Harriet Beecher Stowe in the early 1850s writes Uncle Tom's Cabin, and she forces millions of people to reckon with this idea that this is a terrible thing that America is per- perpetrating and totally at odds with the ideals of the American democracy. And so that- um, Lincoln says at the end, uh, William Lloyd Garrison congratulates Lincoln at the end of the war. And he said, oh, no, it, I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't, I'm not really responsible for emancipation. You know, the, the abolitionists, you know, in their 30 year war did it all. Well, but New Yorkers found out uh, uh, more about slavery. Uh, The Fugitive Slave Act uh, sent uh, southern slave catchers into New York State to take back former slaves. And two uh, very interesting incidents that you depict in the book were the two men. One was Jerry and the other one was Nall, N-A-L-L-E, uh, and the slave catchers had to turn back because New Yorkers would not let them go. Yes, and, the, you know, again, it shows how radicalized just average New Yorkers had become. Um, again, they would have preferred to look the other way. But when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1850 and these slave catchers started infiltrating their states, which had abolished slavery and they didn't want anything to do with it, and they were seizing people who had become their neighbors and had, had lived in New York for years and years, seized them. They, they believed the law was completely, you know, uh, 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 abhorrent and sent them back and sent some free people back, by the way, um, into slavery. They, these towns would rise up. And so there were uh, groups that were uh, basically formed and when, there, when a slave catcher arrived in town, they had an incredibly good network to get the word out. And then people would, would rush to the scene of where the, the, the uh, formerly enslaved person was being held. And they would bet, would they'd come with battering rams and you know, all bricks and stones, and they'd beat down the doors and it'd totally intimidate the authorities, seize the, these men, and, and, you know, make off with them. And they, there were a couple of these rescues that were very successful. You mentioned two of them. And in the Nall rescue in Troy, New York, Harriet Tubman happened to be passing through Troy at the time, heard that, you know, word got out that this man had been arrested, and she played a pivotal role in, in, uh, in rescuing him. Well, that was good for those two men, uh, and it made a lot of people uh, think twice because that got big play in the newspapers. Uh, didn't Horace really uh, write a number of stories about this? Yes, well, and Horace Greeley was, was a friend of, uh, of, of, of uh, Seward's and you know, quite a progressive figure himself. So yes, these stories, these were national stories, and they made their way down to the Deep South as well, of course, and it was a source of, you know, complete horror to Southern slaveholders that this was going on, and they began to see that this, this was not going to end well. Well, um, it was good for those two people and a number of others, but uh, that was a pretty sad day when the Fugitive Slave Act was enacted, and... Uh, 
wasn't there the Kansas-Nebraska Act that was another uh, stimulating uh, point uh, that roused people on both sides? Yes, and that's another whole long uh, story. The Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, essentially, it was based on the notion of popular sovereignty, which meant that the majority... If the majority of the, the territory, basically it was the territory of Kansas, when Kansas was applying to become a state, that if a majority of the men, and they were all men, uh, voted to be a slave state, Kansas would be a slave state. And that meant that it made, basically that, that law would have permitted slavery to spread across the country as, as the country, you know, be, uh, as more states entered as you moved west. So that, too, was an incredible catalyst. And the, the Fugitive Slave Act, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, were two things that made Lincoln himself think that he, could, he had been quite circumspect. About, again, he was a politician about, about uh, slavery. And with, with the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act and with the Dred Scott decision, which happened around that time, he decided that he, this was, he had to say something about it. And he did. And those were um, the, uh, the, um, the, the Douglas, the Lincoln Douglas debates. And that was, it was um, Stephen A. Douglas, Senator Stephen A. Douglas. And at that point, Lincoln was running for his Senate seat. And those debates were really all about, you know, whether slavery could, could persist in this country. And Stephen A. Douglas was involved in another series of debates with another man named Douglas. That was Frederick Douglas, who spelled it with two S's at the end and was a black man. So uh, that really uh, went on for a while, didn't it? The debates between the two yes, of them? Yes, and that, that was quite funny, actually. I mean, in, in a way. Uh, so Frederick Douglas, who was world, a world-renowned abolitionist, I mean, just a, an extra, an, a magnificent speaker himself, so after, and if he, of course, was appalled by all of this, after the Kansas-Nebraska Act passed, Stephen A. Douglas decided to take a tour in the northern states to try to convince northerners that this was just going to be a great thing. So um, Frederick Douglas thought, well, this is a great opportunity. I'll just, I'll just follow him. Every, stop, every place he stops and gives a speech, I'll give a speech, too. And so, of course, and he knew that this would be irresistible to the newspapers who talked about Douglas and Douglas. And, uh, and one of the stops was in was just outside Auburn. And when Stephen A. Douglas heard that that uh, that 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 Frederick Douglas was in town, you know, he just holed up in his hotel room and wouldn't come out. Uh, and and uh, Frederick Douglass followed him all the way to Chicago. And it was just and he gave these speeches that were just you know, un, unrivaled. They were so great. And of course, further, further riled things up. And now we go to the point of uh, Lincoln is elected and uh, several states secede shortly thereafter. Uh, and this must have been a terrible time for a lot of people in this country. It was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. They, uh, you know, most people had not been alive at the War of 1812. They had no idea. Society had been relatively stable. If abhorrent, it had been stable until then. And this, imagine, this is this great experiment in democracy. And the war is over whether this country will survive. And 
so the, and then there were in, in Washington there once Lincoln was elected, seven states has southern states seceded, and then there were all of these rumors, many of them true, that. The um, Southerners were going to invade Washington and take over the Capitol, that when Lincoln came to town, before he even got to town, he would be assassinated. A plot was discovered. And actually, uh, William, uh, William H. Seward had to get a message to Lincoln when he was on his way to Washington, you know, sent his son to give him this message in Philadelphia saying, you know, you have to take a different train because there are legitimate, there are believable rumors that, you know, you, you will be assassinated if you take the planned train. You know, he, Lincoln publishes his train schedule in hmm. newspapers, so it wasn't the, the greatest, this is the wisest thing to do. But in any case, the Seward, that Seward did uh, derail that, that plan, so to speak, and got him on a different train late at night. And then to, to Lincoln's everlasting shame, he had to enter, you know, as the sort of, you know, hunched over in a, in a, uh, in a long overcoat and pretending he was someone else. Um, but these were, these were, you know, legitimate uh, fears. And at every step, he took this long, circuitous route from, uh, from Illinois to Washington. And Frances Seward and her daughter Fanny were in, were in uh, Auburn. And every day they opened the newspapers to, with, with their hearts in their throats, you know, terrified that something would have happened to Lincoln along the way. And in those days, uh, the inauguration was in, on March 4th. So between Election Day and March 4th was a long time. And that's why he could take such a long trip uh, from Illinois to uh, Washington, D.C. Yes, and, and it, it put Seward in, I mean, it put, yes, it put Seward in a very bad position uh, he, because he, he was kind of holding down the fort in Washington for all of those months and you know, trying to keep everyone kind of as calm as possible. And uh, a number of people thought Lincoln should have come to Washington sooner, but you know, he, in his usual way, he was very uh, careful and he was working out plans for his cabinet and he was working out, most importantly, how he was going to you know, negotiate with the South. So he stayed all that time. He, only, he came to, to the Capitol just you know, uh, days before he gave his inaugural address. And some of the states on the border between North and South uh, remained uh, with the Union. And this was another point of contention between Francis and, uh, and William Henry Seward, uh, because she thought that more should have been done, and he was trying to be pragmatic, as was Lincoln, and to keep them there as part of the Union. Yes, and this is, and I mentioned that amazing letter she she wrote to him about about the border states, essentially saying, "How can you say that these states are more important?" Um, and to me, one of the really interesting things as I was writing the book was to consider this notion of what it is to be a political insider and and the um, the situations you have, the way you look at politics as an insider, and what it looks and and what you can do as an outsider that you can't do if you're actually a a governing, you know, a member of the governing body. So Seward was very uh, acutely aware of this, and he maintained a number of friendships with the most radical uh, uh, abolitionists, including Frederick Douglass. And these men would be writing him letters saying, you must, you must be more outgoing. You must say more about this issue. And, and, uh, 
Seward wrote back to one of them and he said, you know what, you have to let me do this in my own way. You can go out there, you all from the pulpit, you know, and the street, you can go out there and say what has to be said, but it is your job to bring around the American public. And once you have done that, then I can introduce legislation. So that's the tug of America, one of the tugs of American politics, how, you know, and we we see it today, you know, with the progressives who think that from the outside who think that Joe Biden isn't going quickly enough on certain issues. Uh, But it is if you are an elected member of Congress, there are you have to keep your constituents in mind. Well, it was also a a bone of contention within the family, because what uh, what William Henry Seward did was he tamped down his wife's more radical instincts and didn't want her to sign certain things that could be used politically against him. Yes, and this was a bit of you know total hypocrisy on his part, at least as, as far as Frances was concerned. And you know she was so timid by nature for that for her to even think about signing a, uh, an anti-slavery petition was it was a major thing, and she felt that because she was his wife and because he had such an important position at that point, he was a senator, U.S. senator, that she had to ask him before she signed this huge petition, um, which was issued around the time of the publication of uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And she wrote to her her sister and she said, you know, I absolutely think I I should do this and I would do it if if Henry were in the position he's in, but I, I feel I have to ask him. And then, of course, he told her she couldn't do it. And she said, you know, here we disagree. And then that was a, a moderate way of, of putting it. And it was kind of the beginning of her feeling that she didn't want to be under his thumb anymore because he, he was forcing her to compromise on her ideals. Uh, in your book, Dorothy, you have a number of interesting things that go on after this point, after uh, Lincoln is elected. Uh, And one of the points you made, and I think this was also uh, put in the book about Grant, uh, that Lincoln chose 34-year-old George B. McClellan as the commander of the new Army of the Potomac. He excelled at training recruits, but he was flagrantly insubordinate. Sharing the common view that Henry Seward dictated White House policy to a weak president, McClellan described him as a meddling, officious, incompetent little puppy who had done more than any other man to get the country into its scrape. <laughs> yes, and it, it, he was, McClellan really was insufferable, it must be said. He, his personality, he was such a, you know, so full of himself. And when it came to actually, you know, leading his troops, as he was supposed to do, he was extremely reluctant to do it, and he wouldn't listen to orders from the White House even. Uh, but Seward becomes such a, uh, for, for all the war years, he becomes a scapegoat, you know, for anyone who was thinking, feeling, and often rightly, that the, the war policy wasn't going well, because they all think, the, the, the common view is that really it's Seward who's running the, the presidency. It can't possibly be Abraham Lincoln. And that just wasn't true at all. They were, they were close friends. They, they had shared absolutely almost all of their political beliefs. So he was, he was a source of jealousy among other members of the cabinet who started scheming against him in the most 
outrageous ways. And when the war continued to go badly, it was Seward who was blamed again and again. And finally, this, this internal rebellion is launched, which is comprised partly of of uh, Chase in the cabinet and then of Charles Sumner on the Hill. And they all try to, to, to get Lincoln to fire Seward. And, he, and, Seward, and you know, Lincoln, to his credit, absolutely, he sees exactly what they're up to and he refuses to do it. And uh, in I think it was in 1862, Lincoln signed the Confiscation Act, which stated that because the Confederacy was using its slaves to wage war against the U.S., they could be legally confiscated. Yes, that's right. And that was the beginning of, of Lincoln working through, and, and Congress, there, by, at the, by that point, there were a couple of very strong abolitionist members of Congress who were pushing, uh, who were pushing for slavery to be overturned and were pushing for black soldiers to be admitted into the, into the, into the Union Army. So the Confiscation Act was the beginning of, of Lincoln reconsidering, you know, his his views on how he could constitutionally uh, get 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 the slaves out from under in the South. And in eighteen sixty two, also that same year, the U.S. had taken Port Royal, one of the Sea Islands of South Carolina. Uh, plantation owners and other white residents fled as the Union Army advanced, leaving 10,000 slaves, of whom I think at least 2,000 volunteered to become soldiers in the Union Army. Well, and that that's one of my ch- favorite episodes in the book, because at that point, Harriet Tubman, you know, there's no, no longer an Underground Railroad because the war is well underway, and Harriet Tubman wants to join the war effort. So she figures out a way to get herself legally, you know, sent down to Union-occupied Port, Port Royal. Um, starts doing some volunteer work to help with these, uh, with this, with this public-private effort called the Port Royal Experiment to help these freed slaves who are who, who desperately need schooling and you know and and lessons in the economy and all kinds of things. But she, what she really wants to do, as she tells Martha before she leaves, is perform a secret service for the Union Army. So she gets herself introduced to the Union generals and colonels and makes herself invaluable to them because she knows how to infiltrate enemy territory. That's what she's been doing for 10 years in her Underground Railroad exploits. And she gets them to give her enough money to uh, create a little band of scouts. And they're, they're surrounded on three sides by Confederates. And so this, um, Harriet and the scouts go out and they determine where the, they're located. And, they report, and Harriet directly reports back to, to the generals. And at that point, black men are being admitted into the Union Army. They're the first, they're the first recruits, and which of course Tubman, you know, completely approves of. And she wants to she wants to play her own part. And so they're launching these river raids uh, in Georgia and South Carolina, where they go up these rivers and they torch the plantations and they liberate the enslaved people and bring them bring them back to Port Royal and then enlist as many of the able-bodied men as they can. So there's a chapter where Harriet is to explain how Harriet Tubman did this in this incredible raid up the Cumbie River, where she and the this abolitionist uh, colonel 
and and black, a number of black troops liberate 750 enslaved people. And she and Tubman described this to her first biographer extremely vividly, what it was like to see these men and women come running down from the plantation to the water, to the to the port, um, you know, with with pot, the women with pots on their heads, still, you know, steaming, and the little children crying, and they were bringing along the hogs, and just an, an extraordinary scene. Another tra- chapter in your book um, talks about uh, Robert Shaw, who uh, from Massachusetts, who led the first black regiment into battle, attacking Fort Wagner. And I believe that they made a movie into that, which was called Glory, with Matthew Broderick as Robert Shaw. Yes, and a very good movie it is, too. I, I yes. wondered if I would feel the same way when I saw it again recently, and I, I still thought it was really pretty great. Um, yes, and so a lot of people do know that the story of Fort Wagner and the, the young Robert Shaw, who looked like a 14-year-old boy. I mean, you know, <laughs> he was very, very young to be leading this regiment and it was again it was not a thing that he he really wanted terribly to do but he was the son of very prominent abolitionists in Massachusetts and his parents thought that they too thought this was a holy war and that this was his duty and he he picked it he picked up he picked it up and he trained those soldiers incredibly well he got he was um, they were totally loyal to him and this was a suicide mission they put the black soldiers at the front, knowing they would be mowed down, uh, you know, and he knew it, but they, they did it. And he felt it was incredibly important to show the country, because it was still in doubt, that black soldiers would fight just as courageously for their country as white soldiers would. And indeed, they did. They were absolute heroes. We have just over a minute to go. Is there one thing you would like to leave us all with? I think what I'm struck by as I hear from people who are beginning to read the book is how much it resonates with today. <laughs> so, you know, you and it, uh, until January 6th with the storming of the Capitol by white supremacists carrying the Confederate flag, I did I thought, well we this country is is divided. It is re, it is divided as it has ever been since the 1850s, but it isn't it it, it we haven't gotten to that stage. And I don't, I still don't think we have, but it is a warning that, you know, the, the white supremacists, first of all, we're seeing just how uh, effective they can be. And they've been there all along. They've been waiting to, for their, for their moment. And so it's, this is a, a, a scary moment again. And uh, look at all of the voter suppression efforts. I think there are, there are major voter suppression laws um, underway by Republicans in the party of Lincoln, by the way, I might add, yes. uh, in 47 states. And so once again, it, you know, you know we're, we're, it's almost like the Jim Crow era, and it has to be fought. And I love the story of these women who did this against every single odd because they felt they had to do it. They were true to the ideas of the Declaration of Independence. And um, and lo and behold, they they made a great difference by doing so. And I want to thank you, Dorothy Wickenden, for being here today and talking about your book, The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. This has been a pleasure, and I certainly enjoyed your book. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. A great pleasure for me, too.
If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.